Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sam May, Legal Research Specialist for the ACFE, and today we're joined by Mr. Rob Sand, the State Auditor of Iowa. Formerly an Assistant Attorney General, he focused on prosecuting white-collar crimes, including our topic today, the hot lotto fraud scandal. He is the author of The Winning Ticket, Uncovering America's Biggest Lottery Scam. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here, Sam. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd talk about the lottery scam and your insights from that investigation and prosecution, but also hopefully take some time to discuss your current work as state auditor. Sure. I'm sure some of our listeners will have either read your book or seen the big New York Times Magazine article on it, but uh, for everyone else, and I understand this was a complex one, but can you give a quick synopsis of America's biggest lottery scam? I I can try. It's a pretty wild case with lots of different angles. Long story short, uh, I got handed a case uh, as assistant attorney general that most of us thought was kind of a dead end. Uh, I did commit to polling on that thread and just kept polling and polling until we had unraveled the largest lottery rigging scheme in American history, which included quite a cast of characters, uh, a Canadian lawyer with a trust in Belize, uh, a shady New York lawyer, uh, an FBI agent uh, who had been fooled and was very motivated to assist us, a crooked Texas lawman, Bigfoot hunters, a former blind date of the mastermind and the mastermind himself, who was a guy from Texas who uh, ended up living in Iowa, which is how this came to be in our uh, neck of the woods. We went to trial uh, knowing only about the one Iowa ticket. That trial is one that uh the national media predicted that we would lose, we won it. And uh, soon after that, because of the coverage, uh, got a tip that sent us uh, on this wild ride, uh, finding the rest of these tickets all over the country. So yeah, the book's called The Winning Ticket. You can get it wherever you like to get books. Uh, and, and the Washington Independent Review of Books, you don't have to take my word for it. The Washington Independent Review of Books actually named it a favorite read of 2022. So I, I promise you a good time. And it's also available uh, by audiobook, which is how I managed to <laughs> wrangle it into my schedule going back and forth to work. It's a great, yeah, very great good, listen. very good. Great. So when you started at the attorney general's office, you actually wanted to prosecute white collar crime instead of some of the more traditionally yeah. popular violent crime stuff. What, what led you down that path? You know, there's never uh, a good excuse for crime, but the motivations oftentimes for desperation, for example, we can appreciate crimes of desperation. Um, Passion, we all get emotional at times. It's hard to control ourselves. White collar crime is like a crime against gratitude. It's a crime against um, one's, one's own position. You have people in these positions of trust and power who have access to money precisely because they're in a good station in life. And they're abusing that trust and power to enrich themselves. It's a crime against public service, a crime against service. And and that, we need more accountability in this country for people at the top. That's particularly motivating for me. And I knew going in that that's what I wanted to prosecute more because I, you know, uh, I think too often we see people at the top, get away with it. We see people at the top not have their crimes charged, not have their crimes taken seriously or get lenient sentences out of things uh, that we would throw the book at someone for, uh, for, for if they were poor, you know? 
Um, so I do, that's something that I took, always took very seriously and really wanted to work at. And that's kind of what led me to um, picking up most of the financial crime in the office, because frankly, it's also more complicated. Um, it takes a lot more work. You have to read the documents, but all the documents you read when you were reading the first 10% are impacted by what you read and read the last 10, the last 10% of those documents. Uh, because you can't really see the whole truth until you've uh, seen every part of it. Uh, and that's that's true for uh, witnesses in an ordinary case of violent crime. I prosecute a lot of that too. Uh, but it's just not as complicated because you hear their stories and you know at the end of the day, um, they, they could be contradicting each other. They could be misremembering something. But if you have two documents that are contradictory, you have to figure out why that is the case. Uh, which, you know, are they both accurate? Is there a story there that's less obvious that explains both of them. It's complicated stuff. And so a lot of folks in the in my division were ready to hand me those financial cases. And so that's what I ended up doing. Wonderful. Now you mentioned these financial crimes, white collar crimes, more complex, more work. And you mentioned in your book, the importance of doing the work. Uh, after that initial prosecution, as things expanded out, uh, you were able, later able to tie Eddie Tipton to friends and family who won other lotteries. Uh, it kind of sounded like what we define as link analysis. Can you describe kind of the your approach to that analysis and what kind of data analysis you do? In, Absolutely. As part of your investigations and audits. Yeah. Uh, it, we, we, it was definitely link analysis. You know, we, we tied him to one guy through a LinkedIn endorsement. Um, we tied him to another uh, lottery winner through a contact in his work phone. We tied him to a third one through a Facebook friend. There were some lottery winners in um, Oklahoma with an ironically unusual name, Con, <laughs> C-O-N-N, -N, two N's, um, not, not precisely the kind of con that we uh, are familiar with, but uh, we noticed that he had uh, some Facebook friends named Con, C-O-N-N, and thought that was unusual and deserved some additional review and located another ticket that way. So we, we absolutely were taking advantage of modern technology and going through every possible set of links and, and of any social network that we could. But you know, on, the honest truth on this one is we didn't really have any tools at our disposal for doing this uh, other than, than control F. You know, we were going through and just saying, okay, well, you know, let's look at this name. Okay, is that name in his contacts in his phone? Control F, nope. Is it in his contacts on Facebook? Control F, nope. Is it in his contacts on, so on LinkedIn? Control F. It, it was a pretty simple analysis. It was cheap. Uh, we were able to move quickly with it. And, you know, on a relatively short um, sample, uh, that, that was good enough. Excellent. So when you first received the lottery scam, my understanding, you weren't even sure that it was a crime or what crime had been committed. It wasn't until after there was a release of some video footage that you got individuals to call in and call in some tips. Uh, how often did you find that your white collar crime prosecutions, investigations, your financial crime stuff, how much of that was generated by tips or improved by tips as you went through? That's a really good question. You know, it's hard stuff to find without at least one tip. Uh, typically in the work we do now at the auditor's office, but also if I was prosecuting a case that had come out of the auditor's office when I was a prosecutor, we needed somebody to tell us, hey, um, 
this clerk in this county has been writing themselves extra paychecks. Now we could spot that in, a, in an audit, um, but normally someone else was the one who spotted that and then we were able to follow up from there. Uh, I had private sector financial crimes where that we prosecuted where somebody would send us a tip and through a ever widening investigation afterwards, we might find additional victims and go from there. But I, I tell people all the time, the phrase, if you see something, say something, seems to have come into our lexicon after 9-11, but it's equally valid in your interactions with government. If we want to root out waste, fraud, and abuse, we need people to help. And frankly, because uh, we can't we can't look everywhere every time. And if you happen to see something, you ought to say something. And even if you don't know who to say it to, just start. Normally, people will tell you. I get inquiries all the time in this job for people that I need to steer to the Consumer Protection Division in the Iowa Attorney General's office. But they might not know that, and that's fine. Government is big and complex. But if I can steer them there, I, I do it. If they don't write me an email, though, I can't tell them where to go. So if you're listening to this, and I, I anticipate most of the people listening to these podcasts are, uh, you know, certified fraud examiners or folks who know, but, uh, you know, remind your family members, remind your friends, just just tell anybody something and they'll help you find the right place. Educating, re-educating, reminding, making sure that people have access to hotlines and methods for sending out those tips is vital work for fraud examiners. Absolutely. And now that you're combating fraud, waste, and abuse at the state auditor's office, is there more data analysis? Are you? I understand you're still seeing tips and relying on tips, but is data analysis catching up, taking over the future? It's catching up. Um, we are certainly doing quite a bit more of it. I would say in my first term, I was elected for the first time in 2018, you know, we this office prior to that still had folks hand scheduling bank records. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if you can't see Sam's face folks, and I know you can't, his eyebrows are raised. My eyebrows were raised too. It was one of those things where I was like, wow, we need new leadership in this office. So, you know, now we use software to schedule out bank records. Is it perfect? No, but it saves a lot of time. Um, we have uh, additional software uh, that we are looking at uh, we're, we're trying to see if it's worth getting into AI auditing software at this point. And, you know, the, the auditing and accounting industry is under a tremendous workforce crunch. We've seen the numbers of people employed go down uh, 15, 20, 25 percent in the last three years, three and a half years. And so we've got just as much work to do, if not more, but fewer people to do it. That's really meaningful, too. And I'm, uh, we're looking around trying to see if there's new steps that we should be taking or making to to improve our ability to spot things. I think there's some good programs out there. I think a lot of it at the end of the day ends up with any individual office's risk, uh, you know, uh, cost benefit analysis, where you are, what you're already doing and where that would take you to and figuring that out. So we're working on that here uh, just as much as other folks are elsewhere. So we're looking at a future of uh, audits by chat GPT. Is that Probably in the pipeline. You know, at a certain point, I think we're. I've played around with GPT a little bit as well as Google Bard. I have not been impressed. I, I feel like they kind of AI right now is kind of like your your friend who you might start a conversation about something, uh, and, and, and then you you almost hear them typing on the other end to quickly Google <laughs> something so that they can they can have something intelligent to say. 
I almost I almost feel like they're 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 panicking as you type in the question and spitting something back out at you that you're they're hoping you don't spot that they aren't really that intelligent about it. Uh, is it coming someday? Is it going to be more useful? Yes. There's clearly stuff that it can do right now that it's pretty effective at doing. Um, I don't have, you know, we looked at some of the audit AI software back in 2019 and decided that it wasn't there. It just, it wasn't advanced enough from where we sat as an office to really be a value add that was worth the cost of it. We're going to take another, it's been four years. Certainly there's been a lot of advancement. We're going to take another look here and see if that's the case. But, um, you know, I always, I always go back to this. There's, there's some things that computers are never going to be able to do. They're never going to be able to understand or see the connections between people other than, you know, the sort of link analysis that can, you can do through digital evidence. But they're not, I don't think they're going to be able to make the same sort of credibility assessments of people. Um, they're not going to know how the world works in a way that a human being through their lived experience knows. And the more we can take things that computers can do, and have them do those things, the more we can have people focusing on the things that we do need people to do. So I, I, I welcome the addition. I think it's ultimately going to be something that helps us get better work done and more work done. And, you know, maybe someday we'll just work three days a week. <laughs> I don't think any of us would complain too much about working three days a week. I would be okay with that. So getting back to Eddie Tipton, uh, as you worked it, the case expanded as other law enforcement agencies reached out with their own kind of strange dead-ended cases at times. When other agencies or uh, other organizations got involved, how did it impact your investigation? Was it, was it troublesome? Did it feel like you were getting pulled in different directions or were they generally helpful and collaborative? When they were law enforcement entities, they were always helpful and collaborative. The, the Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigation, the special agent there, Joanne Joy, as well as their assistant attorney general from their attorney general's office, David Moss, they were, they were crucial to this. Wisconsin was able to, they, Wisconsin had things in their possession that we did not have in Iowa because it was their separate state lottery. And, and they were really able to help us nail down some of the really specific stuff as to how Eddie Tipton actually rigged these jackpots. They were incredibly helpful. Richard Renison in Texas, he's the, uh, the FBI agent who had kind of been fooled by the Tiptons at one point. He was incredibly helpful. So was uh, Sheriff Keith Cornick down in, down in Texas. Lotteries, not so much. There were, some, there were some good people that were well-motivated in the lottery industry, especially here in Iowa, Rob Porter, uh, Terry Rich. Um, but there were other state lotteries that didn't want us sniffing around, that didn't want us digging in because they were saying, well, this is going to make the lottery industry look bad. Truth is always good. If it just, seems like if, a yeah, strange motivations there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we can just get to the point where we agree that truth is good and having accountability is good because it helps prevent additional wrongdoing in the future, that's good. Then we don't have to think about that kind of stuff. But yeah, that, that kind of attitude is really hard to relate to. It was, um, was pretty frustrating. I, I, I don't recall the guy's name, but there was uh, one guy who made some kind of threat about if we dug on this or that, we just kind of shrugged it off and did our job. So as, along with aligning objectives, uh, we recommend in a lot of our 
educational material that auditors and investigators, as much as they can, as much as their roles differ in different places, they should work together as early and often as they can provide more collaboration. Uh, do you see positive benefits from that in your office now? Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that I did in my first term was add a position in the office for people with law enforcement experience. Um, I was the first person actually that doesn't, I don't have, I don't have an accounting degree, obviously lawyer by trade. Um, the office had plenty of CPAs and accountants in it. My point was, hey, we're doing public corruption investigations and we don't have anybody in the office with a public corruption background, either prosecuting or investigating. We should probably balance that out a little bit. And we created a position in the office for people with a law enforcement background. I think that's beneficial because, you know, it's, uh, Look, if you if you play 11 quarterbacks on your football team's offense at the same time, you're going to get crushed. You want a quarterback playing quarterback and you want someone sized like an offensive lineman playing on the line. Uh, that's pretty simple stuff. And I think remembering that is really important, though. Uh, so that's been that's been something that's been useful. And I think even the folks who were skeptical of me when I came in, you know, the last 40 years, the state auditor had been a CPA. Even the folks who are skeptical when I came in, a lot of them have come around and even said to me, you know, I, I was I was skeptical when you won, but actually it's good having people around who can look at the legal stuff because, hey, if we're auditing a state agency and that agency gets legal advice from the attorney general, are we worried that we are also taking our legal advice from the attorney general? You know, there's a way for the attorney general to do that that's very appropriate and can address the issue, but it also helps us to have a little bit more independence when we have lawyers in our own office. One other way that auditors and investigators can kind of collaborate and make improvements is with fraud risk management and internal controls. One of the breakdowns that I kind of saw, I think one of the big takeaways for the lottery organization from your prosecution of Eddie Tipton was that he was handed the keys to the kingdom and had no one looking over his shoulder. There didn't seem to be a lot of oversight or internal controls. Was that something that Y'all brought up with the lottery office? Is that uh, kind of recommendations were made at any time? Yeah, you know, part of our deal in wrapping that whole thing up was Eddie needed to sit down and agree to answer all of our questions because we felt an obligation as stewards for taxpayers and, and wanting justice. And most state lotteries felt an obligation to get to the bottom of it and truly understand it so that they could make moves to keep it from happening again. Uh, Eddie really did, you know, they, they had a just a poorly designed system for checks and balances. And I don't want to spoil it for folks, but at the end of the day, you know, what they were having their third party verifier do just had a loophole so big that you could drive a truck through it. And Eddie did. <laughs> and then once that truck was in there, uh, he was able to uh, use it as often as he wanted. So... You know, I was talking about this with someone in terms of AI and the design of algorithms uh, today. You know, your checks and balances, your algorithms, they're really only as good as what you put into them. And if, if, if you look at something and you say, well, that's good enough, because the only way for someone to fix this would be to do X. Well, guess what? Then someone's going to see X and feel like, hey, I could do X, and then they're going to do X. I mean, you got to do a better job than that, um, because at the end of the day, you got to understand that people are going to know that system extremely well. There are going to be only a tiny handful of people who know that system extremely well, which means that they can abuse it and no one else will hardly know what they're doing. 
So if you haven't made it extraordinarily difficult to impossible for someone to abuse uh, internal controls and take advantage of a situation, someone's going to abuse internal controls and take advantage of a situation. So what we're talking about at this point at the ACFE, we describe as opportunity. So we have the fraud triangle uh, for we need three elements kind of to coincide to enable someone to commit fraud is the theory. You've got financial pressure, some sort of motivation, uh, rationalization, and then the third one is opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Eddie Tipton case, I thought it was very interesting that he had this opportunity, this this ability to drive the truck through the open gate, and it took a trigger from I think it was a coworker who mentioned to him just as just in passing that this was even something that he could do. Is that something that you've encountered? Did that surprise you? Is this something that you'd seen before where there was some sort of trigger to jolt someone into like, oh, hey, I could be doing some wrongdoing right now? You know, the the, the pressure or, or the, uh, is, is always a piece of that. I think for most folks, it's, it's financially oriented. Uh, sometimes it is um, responsibility oriented and they end up feeling like, you know, oh, I work. And this was part of this was part of Eddie's rationalization. Oh, I work so hard. I'm, I'm overworked and underpaid. I deserve better. The rationalization is going to fall into place for the people who want to do it. If you've got the pressure and you've got the opportunity and you're the kind of person that's willing to do it, which I think whether or not we'd like to admit it, um, you know, we're all human beings, but you get the wrong person in the wrong situation. They're going to rationalize it however they need to, to go ahead and do it. And as, as far as opportunity and Eddie's sort of uh, almost blind spot to his, his control over picking those winning numbers, uh, yeah, it just it was it was very strange to me to hear that it was something that he had access to for so long, and then it 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 just took a, a moment for him to just have the realization like, oh, I I can do this. Like this is something mm-hmm. that's within my within my power. And and you know his his explanation of it was, well, I wasn't really doing it to rig a jackpot and claim millions of dollars. I was just doing it to see if I could. Oh, of course not. Once yeah. I could, then then after I could, I thought about doing it once, and then I did it once, and then at that point, I thought about doing it a second time, but only because my friend needed it. And, uh, maybe that's true. Maybe he really did. Maybe this really was step by step. It doesn't really change what it is at the end of the day. The final lottery that brought this into the attorney general's purview was the sixteen and a half million dollar ticket that went unclaimed for a year. And it was only because of Eddie Tipton's efforts to claim it that kind of triggered a larger investigation. That's when some of the other more interesting people involved in the investigation got involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he was, and this is this is what happens in every case. You're, it's the hardest part is doing it the first time, and then after you've done it the first time, you think you're, it just gets easier and easier. And so it was probably uh, three jackpots in where he just walked in and bought a $16 million winning lottery ticket by himself. He didn't use somebody else to buy it. Um, And then, you know, he tried to pass it to get it claimed, but it was actually people identifying him on the video of the purchase, not by what he looked like, but by the sound of his voice, uh, which is really interesting. We had multiple people identifying him 
specifically, that's Eddie's voice. And like you, you can hear him walking down the hallway even when you're looking at your computer screen because you just know their voice. Uh, and that's what we had in this case, which I think was better than a visual recognition, actually. So when you were starting the investigation, before you even had Eddie Tipton as the primary suspect, before you released that video footage where somebody said, ah, that's Eddie's voice, uh, you were already, or at that point, I believe you were already uh, talking to some tight-lipped attorneys, the money launders, some very interesting people. Uh, is that common? Or did you experience that a lot in your white collar investigations where there were intermediaries, there were other, not necessarily the prime suspect, but a bunch of other third parties that had to get involved? Yes. Um, I've had quite a few cases where we wanted to turn somebody and have them be a witness for the state. Sometimes, you know, what it takes to turn them depends on their level of culpability. Sometimes they have no idea that what they were doing was criminal and you wouldn't charge them because you can see how they had no idea that it was criminal. And for those folks, you sometimes have to explain to them, hey, I'd actually, I don't want to, I don't want to give you an agreement that I can't charge you because that's going to make your, your testimony less valuable. It's going to, it's going to make it look like, oh, you're getting something for saying what I wanted you to say. And that's not the case. So sometimes you go to an attorney and say, hey, you should, you know, you should go to an attorney, you should find someone who can advise you on this and, and help you figure it out. Uh, and that's always an important piece of this. I also tend to think that when you're, when you've got that third party involved, you know, some of the third parties in this case uh, cooperated with us pretty easily. Some of them never did. Um, and, you know, what we did is at the end of the day, we tried to do our job. There were third parties that didn't cooperate, that we had no real reason to expect, knew that there was criminal conduct going on and we left them alone. Uh, we had other third parties that uh, did cooperate eventually and some of them were charged. So I always go back to this, you know, just try to find a way to do your job and do the right thing. And as long as you're doing that, that's what you can control. You can't control what people do. You can't control what people say. But if you're trying to do your job and, and trying to do right, then whatever that result is, at least you have done those things for what you can truly control. Speaking of not being able to control folks, uh, as an attorney, one of the interesting parts of your book, at least for me, was kind of the courtroom battle and trying to get around some hearsay rules where you didn't, you had a witness that wasn't going to show up and you had to make do using other witnesses staying within the rules of evidence. And it seemed like you had pretty good success doing that in the courtroom, doing the trial work. Uh, has investigatory work, has audit work been that done the same thing for you? Has has that transition, have, have you felt like you're missing out on the courtroom? Uh, I have felt like I'm missing out on the courtroom. I, I appreciate the compliment of the work in there. Uh, credit goes to my mentor, uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Tom H. Miller, who taught me a lot about how to how to work in a courtroom. You know, one of the really wonderful things, one of the really enjoyable things about a courtroom is you have to be kind of peak performance, both intellectually and physically at the same time during a jury trial. You've got a jury sitting there. They're going to look at you. They're going to see what you're doing. They're, they may make judgments off of that. And so you have to be mindful of what you're doing physically at the same time that you're thinking about okay, I could object to that question. Do I want to object? Is that objection at this point uh, beneficial? And you have to make those decisions up before the answer comes out of the witness's mouth, you know? 
And so, yeah, we had some situations in there where we knew there were going to be objections coming and we had to walk very closely around uh, the rules to make sure that we were following the rules, but also helping admit the evidence that we legally were able to admit in a way that required being careful about the rules. Uh, we were able to get that done. Uh, you know, the other thing I miss about the courtroom compared to, you know, I'm, I'm in an elected position here in Iowa is typically in a courtroom, if somebody lies, there are consequences for them. I love that. Uh, the judge would pick up on it. The, you would point out, well, actually, judge, if you look at this next paragraph of the same decision that counsel is citing, it tells you that that doesn't apply in this matter. You know, and so it wouldn't it wouldn't get somebody ahead. They wouldn't get ahead by line. And sometimes if they lied badly enough, they uh, get their license suspended. If only we could do that in politics. Yeah, if only. Uh, I, I know that if was only. a big sticking point for uh, doing investigative interviews was in remembering that sometimes you just have to take the lie and move on. It's better to, you can't necessarily combat them. You're not always gonna get somebody to confess and admit to a lie, but sometimes just recording the lie, moving on and letting it take place in court later and stepping yep. away from it was very hard sometimes. Yep. And I think we had, uh... Uh, a great example in the book of that from Don Smith, one of the key investigators in the case, where the first time they sat down and interviewed Eddie Tipton, he said some stuff that they really could have pushed back on. And instead, he just kind of kept circling back to this one question that he knew there should be good answers to, and yet Eddie wouldn't give him a good answer. Um, I don't want to spoil it for people. Again, the book is called The Winning Ticket. <laughs> but it was it was really... Uh, really kind of a work of art to see Don press that issue without actually pressing it. Just calmly collected, kept coming back to this one question in a way where then when the jury looks at it, it's like, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's bizarre that he wouldn't answer that question. But Eddie, I don't even think was necessarily even tuned in to the fact that it had been asked of him five times because Don was doing it in such a just nonchalant manner. Because of the skill of the uh, interviewer. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So after you won the case that the media said you weren't going to win and mm -hmm. you, you closed that book, you decided to leave prosecution and go into fraud, waste, and abuse, and ran and was elected state auditor for Iowa. Yeah. What prompted this change for you? Uh, criminal prosecution is only darkness. I mean, by the time a case comes to a prosecutor, it's really a question of kind of the worst things that can happen to people in their life and the worst things that people can do to each other. I have always been something of an optimist. I, I could see after probably about six years in my job that that was changing a little bit. And I didn't want it to change completely. Um, and I'd worked with the auditor's office enough to see that there were some positive changes that could be made there. Again, you know, adding somebody with law enforcement background, uh, making it so that um, we're not hand scheduling bank records. Uh, and then I realized that the office could actually do a lot to promote efficiency in terms of the use of taxpayer money. And that's kind of what sold me on it. I thought, hey, I can, I can, I can create a program that promotes efficiency. I can wake up every day and think of a new way to do that. And if we get a program, a system up and running in place to do that, we're going to be making the world a better place. And that to me is what I want to do day in, day out. And so I, I thought that the uh, state auditor's office is a great, great place to do that. And I guess since you ran again and were reelected that you still kind of feel that way about 
the auditor's office. Absolutely. So have you gained any new perspectives moving from prosecution to state auditor that would be useful to fraud examiners in terms of perpetrators, detection of fraud, or, or how the auditing work differs? Well, that's a great question. You know, we have two different divisions in our office. We've got our financial audit division and our special investigation division. And so while the work that they do is similar, it is distinct. Um, you know, I guess I would I would say I, I think I think the last five years have borne this out. Try to work with people who have different training than you. You know, if if you're working in an office that's all CFEs or all CPAs, like why don't you have somebody in there with a legal background who graduated from a law enforcement academy who asks questions that you that, not the dumb questions, although I think it's actually very useful to have dumb questions get asked, but somebody who just asks different questions that make you go, oh, huh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, it's a, you know, intellectual diversity is something that I think can help us uh, balance things out and make sure we're making good decisions. So I'd say that in terms of, uh, of tra people's training as well. Well, I appreciate your allowance for stupid questions today, especially. Stupid questions are kind of crucial, honestly. And it seems like from the beginning of your career now to where you are here, you've always been interested in working for the public, choosing Iowa over Harvard, choosing the attorney generals over a big law firm. For our listeners that are thinking about transitioning or starting off and choosing to go into anti-fraud roles, working for the public good, do you have any advice for them? Yes, do it. <laughs> I, I'm a huge believer in getting a paycheck with a purpose. Right? There's a lot of jobs that people can have uh, that give them a paycheck, but meaning in life and in true happiness in life doesn't come from feeling carefree as much as it comes from feeling that you have made an impact in the world and done something for other people. That's, that's at the end of the day where I have my best days are people where when oftentimes they, they come back to me and they say, hey, I want you to know that you did this and it really had an impact on me. I, I cherish those, you know, those mean a lot to me. Now, of course, you can get a paycheck and a purpose in the private sector. It depends on what your work is. But I think it's much easier to get in the public sector where you're, you're serving the state, you're serving the people. And I'd encourage everybody to do that. And just sort of to finish off here, and I, if you don't want to talk about this, feel free to, to tell me no. Uh, but I wanted to have a chance to talk to you about the current goings on in Iowa with the state auditor's office. Uh, we try to stay politically neutral here at the ACFE. Uh, we're focused on helping fraud examiners, but I think the news concerning your office could be applicable to fraud examiners in the private and public sector. Uh, the short version, as I understand it, is that legislation is making its way through the process that could significantly hamper the work of the state auditor's office, re uh, removing or reducing access to information or using the legal system to enforce subpoenas. For Fraud examiners working to investigate fraud, waste, and abuse within organizations, within agencies, where the people that they're responsible for investigating might hold the purse strings, the reins, or be able to act, limit or change control. How do you navigate investigating, auditing, and kind of asking for permission or combating restrictions to your role? Boy, um... That's a complicated question. The bottom line on this is, yeah, I mean, this. so this bill that's uh, going to be sent to the governor, it's passed the legislature, literally makes it so that state agencies can hide documents from the auditor's office as long as the governor agrees. 
Now, of course, the governor is typically going to be in charge of that state agency and responsible for any waste, fraud, and abuse there. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, it, it turns the idea of a good audit on its head. Uh, it's a terrible idea, and you're not being political by making a statement against it. You know, the IACPA uh, commented on this matter. The, Associate, the Institute of Internal Auditors uh, commented on this matter. This is this is we've seen really nonpartisan outcry against this because it's the erosion of checks and balances, which shouldn't be a partisan issue. So how do I navigate it? You know, I, I try to talk with anybody. I, I try to contact anybody who will listen. I'll work with anybody to do good and work with no one to do bad. And whether or not people want to work with me to do good, that's up to them. Again, I can't control that. What I can do is try to fight for what I believe in in a way that makes people want to work with me. And that's what I try to do every day. So. Whether or not that's effective, whether or not a different method would work better, you know, we've we've seen um, we've seen plenty of people um, thinking that the, the loudest yeller and the most personal attacks um, are the way to do it. I don't I don't see much evidence of that. What I've been trying to do is attack this bill and attack this idea because it is terrible, and let the people who are advocating for it figure out that. You know, maybe this might be one of those instances in their life where they may have been mistaken about something. It's okay for them to change their mind. Yeah, keep it professional. Don't make it about a person. Make it about the rules yeah. and proper enforcement. And to be clear, you know, I'm not perfect at doing that. I, I get really frustrated with this bill, um, and I've been frustrated at other times too. But that should be our. That should always be our aim. I think. Wonderful. Thank you so thank you again so much for joining me today for this podcast, Rob. I really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to chat. Happy to do it. Thanks, Sam. And thank you for listening. You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Sam May signing off.